health of soul. And the word soul means what you want it to mean, really. Um, I think it means the whole of us. Um, the whole of us in harmony, the whole of us in balance. And we'll look at, I mean, in fact, what we have been looking at through all of these texts uh, refers to the meaning of health, to the meaning of wholeness. And today we'll look a little bit more deeply into that. We'll continue to uh, reflect on the Sermon on the Mount, on the Beatitudes, and then we'll also look at one of the great uh, modern poems, uh, part of the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. The understanding of meditation that we are working with is that it is a journey, it's a process, it's not just a course or a technique that you master or that you do in a limited period of time. It's something that enters into your life as a, in a transformative way and, and over time uh, becomes a natural part of your daily routine, daily existence. Uh, Barry said a very interesting thing uh, once when he was talking one of the courses we have in Dublin he said when he first began to meditate, the problem was learning, or, or, or was doing the meditation, uh, but now the problem was not doing it. And that if he didn't do it, then uh, he realized that there was something missing. So that could sound like an addiction, uh, but actually it's not an addiction when you think about it, because this is something you will have to continually renew. It's, uh, is marriage an addiction? Uh, as it could be, but uh, it's something you have to continually renew, rediscover, reinvent in a way. You have to um, recommit yourself to it where you are now and in terms of what it has made you, what it has led you into. So it's, it's the, the ancient idea that you never go down to the same river twice. It's the same river, it has the same name. It's flowing in the same uh, channel, but it is always new. The content is always fresh. So meditation is one of these uh, things, one of these very few things in life, uh, that uh, capture this essence, really, of both the flow and the stability of life, the continuity of life, day by day, something ordinary, you don't have to be, make a big drama about meditating every day. But at the same time, it's touching into the very wellspring, what the Tao calls the source. And the French, for la source is spring. So I think some of you are going to go up to the St. Michael's Well today. And one of the beautiful things about the island is to come across these little springs coming out of the earth with this fresh, pure water. So meditation is, it takes us uh, and opens up within <coughs> us uh, the source of life, in fact, the source of being that we've been talking about. And this experience of being that comes through the source, which is within ourselves, uh, flows over and 
touches and transforms and cleans the existence, the daily existence. So you have, we've been talking about being as, as the fundamental reality and existence coming out of that, the manifestation of being in your personality, your history, your job, your difficulties, your joys, uh, all of these are the expressions of that fundamental source of being. So what I want you to do just before we um, meditate now is say a word about the stages, or another word about the stages of meditation. Yesterday I spoke about the stages of saying the mantra, for example. Uh, these aren't obviously stages that you tick off in your diary and say, on the 23rd of January I moved from stage one to stage two. Great progress, you know. So it's not that kind of uh, way of measuring stages. Nevertheless, in retrospect and with a, with a certain panoramic view of your journey, uh, you become aware of these phases that you go through, just as we go through in life. You know, at what point do you stop being a, a child and start being an adolescent? At what stage do you start to become middle-aged? At what stage do you start to become old? These are not um, things that you sort of tick off in your diary on a particular day, but nevertheless they are real stages in our development. Now, the other th approach I'd like to offer you today is looking at the levels of consciousness that we pass through as we make this journey. When we first begin to meditate, we encounter the turbulent, distracted level of mind which can make us quite uh, discouraged. We realize that we, we think probably we're fairly together, we have ambitions, we have work, we have some qualifications, we've got some achievements, and then we sit to meditate for uh, half an hour, and within 30 seconds, we have discovered how difficult it is for us to, to pay attention, just to be in the moment, without planning, remembering, or daydreaming, and we, we make up our mind, this is what we're going to do, and we intend to do it, but we find that we just keep slipping, like walking on a slippery road. So, uh, many people give up at that stage, or after two or three, uh, what they think of as failed attempts, and they say, well, this is just isn't for me, I'm sure there are other people who are good at meditating, but it's not for me, uh, I'll do something else, or I won't do anything else. And that's a pity, because absolutely everybody who's ever sat to meditate experience, has experienced this. So why should you be any different? Why should you expect to be calm, centered, and free of distraction? The important thing is how to deal with that experience of distraction, uh, how to see the discouragement, or the self-judgment, or the self-rejection, uh, the sense of failure, to see all of those responses as other kinds of distraction. So you just notice them and you let them go. You don't buy into them. You just say, well, that's a point of view. 
and it's, it's not one that I'm going to entertain at the moment. And that's where you could say meditation really begins to work at that first stage, that first level of consciousness. Now, I think it's uh, almost necessary that we have uh, some sense of connection with other people, with a community, with a sangha, with a network, with a family, with some kind of sense of, of belonging to or participation in a group of people who meditate to be able to get through that first stage. It's theoretically possible, you can do it entirely on your own, and there are people who have, but there's certainly a tremendous advantage and it becomes much easier if you can quite regularly anyway meditate with other people. That's why we come together for a week like this. So, um, the distractions at this first level of consciousness are quite uh, surprising, maybe, and quite shocking. Uh, you say the mantra for a few seconds before you are interrupted and go off on a, a long walkabout uh, in your fantasy world or imagination. And then you remember you're supposed to be meditating when you come back to the mantra. And you probably will give up the practice for a period of time, maybe for a day, maybe for a week, maybe for a year. Uh, but if any kind of experience of being has come through this, you don't forget it, and it will bring you back, probably, at some point. So, we need perseverance, we need some help from our friends, and we need to begin the process of learning. Remember, meditation is a, a learning process. That's what a discipline is, a learning process. You know, when you, okay, as a, a child, I wanted to learn the trumpet. So I bought a trumpet, very enthusiastic. Tried to blow it. Tried to make a noise out of it. Total failure. I had to find a teacher. I used to go down every week into the basement of this old house on Portobello Road in London and learn to learn the trumpet from this rather burned out old trumpet player and uh, who uh, patiently taught me. And then I would stay on. I would be the first uh, student of the evening and then, but I would stay on as he taught other students who were more advanced. So just by watching them, listening to them, I was picking up more, even though I couldn't always understand it because they were more advanced, but it gave me um, you know, a sense of belonging to a learning community, and I admired him, I trusted him, and, and so on. And I became, for a short time, a very bad trumpet player, <laughs> but, but at least I'd, I'd learnt it. So, uh, so that's the first stage. Now, then subtly, rather imperceptibly, you move to a second level of consciousness. The second level of consciousness you might describe as the hard disk of our lives. This is where everything is stored. You think you've deleted it, but it's still there. And you 
may well find that there are files of past experience that you haven't actually closed yet. That they are still there. <coughs> They're not finished yet. They may be experiences of loss, or of anger, or betrayal, or failure, or confusion, uh, grief. And it's always surprising when you do discover that things that you feel that you have dealt with and tidied away or have just gone off into the past actually are still quite fresh. When my, my mother died, I grieved uh, a lot for her, of course. And um, then about probably, I don't know how many years later, probably ten years later, uh, I, you know, the grief had, had passed uh, and I didn't feel that pain anymore, you know, the pain of loss. But uh, I was, happened to be driving past the cemetery with a friend and we, we drove in, went to her grave and I wasn't feeling any particular strong emotion. But suddenly... So suddenly, out of nowhere, a mobile phone rang. <laughs> so suddenly, out of nowhere, came this wave, this wave of grief, and it was exactly what I felt uh, when I was standing at the grave uh, ten years before. This is as fresh, didn't last as long, but it hit me. So. You know, we, we have uh, a lot within us, uh, under the surface, out of sight. And this is another kind of distraction, another sort of level of distraction, which we have to be uh, conscious of at times and work our way through. Now, some of these, some of these experiences, some of these memories, some of these vestiges or unfinished business will just resolve themselves unconsciously uh, through the work of meditation. Sometimes you may feel some sort of rather vague uh, feeling of, of loss or anger. You may say, I wonder why I'm feeling so irritated at this moment. Uh, so sometimes it may be quite unspecific. But this, th these things are being resolved. The the, the energy that they contain is being brought back into your full uh, economy, into the full health of soul. And, uh, but sometimes they will bubble up into the surface of your mind. And you'll say, oh, what on earth am I thinking about that person for? I haven't thought about them for 20 years. And uh, you know, for a while, not only in the meditation, but maybe outside the meditation, you'll find yourself occasionally recalling some chapter of your past. And if it's a, if it's a deep uh, problem, uh, uh, something that you really need to talk about with someone, then you find the appropriate way of doing it. But meditation itself is not a time of analysis. It is a therapy of the soul. It is a healing of the soul but it's not an analytical uh, diagnosis. So that may 
be necessary at other times, in some cases for periods of time, but the time of meditation itself, you say the mantra, you continue to say it as best you can. If your emotions are very strong, well, like a, a boat in a storm, you, you do the best you can. You're not making as much, it may seem as if you're not making as much progress because the storm is pushing you back. But actually, even those times of meditation where you seem to be making least progress and having least success, in real terms, they may be the times when you're making most progress. Because this deeper, stronger work of integration, and of healing, of remembering is taking place. So, okay, so at the first level you just learn to say the mantra despite constant interruptions. And at the second level you have to learn not to become self-absorbed. Not to find yourself too fascinating. Not to wallow in your own juice. <laughs> but, uh, and again, the same discipline is at work. The discipline of learning to pay attention, of learning to say the mantra. And then there's a third level of consciousness, which uh, some of the contemplative writers speak about as a, uh, well, one of them calls it the naked awareness of yourself. So in a sense, at this point, you hit the wall of the ego. What is the ego? The ego, as we were saying yesterday, is this mechanism of separation of separateness. It's useful, it's valid, but it can also be a block. And we have to transcend the ego. This is a recurrent uh, motif of all of the texts we've been looking at. To come to enlightenment, to come to being, to come to full health, we have to experience this transcendence, this self-transcendence. And the self-transcendence is the transcendence of the ego. Now, we don't transcend the ego by blowing it up. We don't solve the problem by violence. Uh, so what do we do when we hit this wall of the ego? There's nothing to do. You just continue doing what you're doing. By this time, you have learned the discipline of the mantra. You're probably able to listen to it now. At the first stage, you're saying it. At the second stage, you're sounding it. At the third stage, uh, you are learning to listen. So you patiently wait at this wall. There is the sense of, of a separateness between you and you, between you and your true self, between existence and being, between you and other people. And you become aware of this. It... it it's not necessarily terrifying or, or tragic, or, but it, you'll become aware of it. And anybody who's ever become aware of their ego is also conscious, I wonder whether I could go beyond this. Or I wonder if I am my ego. I was once giving a talk in New York and this uh, executive... Very 
well-dressed woman came in and uh, sat right in the front row and uh, looking quite defiant and uh, listening to what I was saying. I I was speaking about the ego and uh, I could see she was interested but she was also expressing her her disagreement with me very strongly by her her expre- facial expressions. And anyway, after the meditation, I said, are there any questions? And uh, she said, no, but I have a comment. <laughs> and she said, uh, I, I just totally disagree with what you say about the ego, transcending the ego. She said, I spent years building my ego. I wouldn't, wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, and so she said, and I'm not going to just throw it away and transcend it. You know, I, I want to make it stronger and make it a better tool for my working for us in the world. So I thought she was actually quite well advanced. You know, she was at least able to say, I am my ego. Most of us don't say that, but we just assume it and uh, live, live with this sort of vague uh, identification with our own ego. But at least she got to the point where she would, uh, would one day, I hope, be able to, to, to see that this is what she was doing. So, anyway, so we're sitting here at the wall of the ego. Now, this wall has been built up. It has its own... Uh, there is a wall there. It develops naturally as part of our psychological development, necessarily, so that we can say to our mother, no, I am not doing this, uh, from the age of two. Okay? And, uh, but we then add to this wall. We build it up brick by brick. And it, the wall gets built up usually out of the response to fear or to pain. It's a way of protecting, stealing ourselves against uh, the unknown or against the enemy or against uh, pain. So what we think of as protecting ourselves, of course, quickly becomes a prison. So here we are, sitting quietly in meditation. The first level of consciousness has calmed down, still active, but it's calmed down. So we're not constantly interrupted by thoughts about what we didn't put on our shopping list. And we have already begun to experience some some true integration of our past, of our personality. We may have begun to see the effects of this, a greater inner peace and acceptance. Uh, But now we're... So that's going on. But... Now we're just at this sort of separateness level. What do we do? Well, we we continue the work. And then the brick falls out of the wall. Just one little brick is all you need. And then you see through the wall. And then you're reassured that the wall is not the end of the journey. That there is something beyond it. You just need a little glimpse of it to know that. And as you sit there meditating, 
now listening to the mantra, quietly, more and more bricks begin to fall out of the wall. And with every brick that falls out, uh, you're getting back to the, the height of the wall as it should be. We were talking about the ego yesterday. This is what the, what the, what the ego should be. Just a small little convenient marker uh, saying this is, this is me, this is you, at least for the sake of argument. And we, we can't live this vision of total unity, the unit of state, you know, at every business meeting we go to or in every transaction uh, in the supermarket. So we accept the limited reality of the world of duality, but we know that's not the full shilling, that's not the full story. So the wall begins to reduce. And uh, with that comes, of course, a greater freedom, a greater spontaneity, uh, a childlikeness, Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, this is the simplicity that we are coming across continually in these other texts. Okay. So, this is a natural uh, result of this, of this process. And then, there is another stage, which we can't uh, put our uh, finger on so expressively, but it's where we actually go over the wall, or through the wall, and into this oneness, this experience of being. And how you, how you describe that, how you express that, how these different traditions that we've been looking at understand it will depend upon your language, your vocabulary, your culture, your tradition, your belief system. If you don't have any uh, belief system, if you don't have any symbolic language, if you don't have any uh, ways of understanding it, then you will probably go in search of them. Because we need these as tools to understand uh, what the experience means. So that's another another week for us. But uh, but basically, we 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 can have this experience of going over the wall of the ego into pure being, and uh, we know that this is the beginning, not the end. That this is a, an expansion into a, a way of being which is boundless and which is full of wonder, everything again that we've begun to see in the texts we've been looking at. Now, as an experience in time and space, that may be intermittent, but even if you only had the slightest glimpse of it, once, like W.B. Yeats sitting in the London, in the crowded London shop, a cup of tea on a marble tabletop, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden my body blazed, and for 20 minutes, more or less, I was blessed and could bless. 
So even if you've had the slightest glimpse of this, and we all have actually, probably as children anyway, uh, we know that it's there. We know, and our whole perception of reality has been reconfigured because the horizon has changed. The whole perspective has changed. And I think this is what meditation does in a subtle way. Not because we're building up towards some great enlightenment experience. They may or may not come. Or they may come in ways you don't expect. Well, certainly will come in ways you don't expect and at times you don't expect. There's no way of programming it. And there's certainly no sense in trying to force it or, or imagine it or fake it. So, but nevertheless, the, this whole process of meditation is going to transform the way you are with yourself and with the world. So, uh, now, these, 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 so these three main levels of consciousness, then, the first level of just distracted, trivial mind, the second level of the deeper emotional, psychological history, even pre-conscious history, you know, uh, before we were capable of conceptualizing or remembering things. So all of these, of course, leave their mark on us. And the third level of the, the ego, uh, these three levels don't shut down when you pass, you know, you go past the first level, then you move into the second and into the third, because otherwise you would have to, you just, you would stop functioning. But what actually happens is that they become harmonized. And they become uh, stabilized and less reactive, less uh, inflamed. And I think we could say that much of modern consciousness is in a state of inflammation. And what you do with inflammation at a physical level, you, you reduce the inflammation in the, for the infection. And so meditation is a way, I think, of reducing the inflammation. And then these levels of consciousness are able to operate more sharply uh, and more keenly and more appropriately with this, also with this great virtue of discernment that we looked at yesterday or discretion. So anyway, here's another little... Uh, diagram of, of how we could see the stages of meditation uh, and it expresses something of the experience of transformation that we pass through. 